0: There are several individuals in our own congregation that have experienced basic training in the military. I'm thankful for the men and women of our nation's military past and present. I was reading a little bit, just a little bit this week, of some training, for some preparations for military training. Not for me, but for just the knowledge of it. And I came across one one website that was... Call the Ten Commandments to preparing for military training. Be motivated. Concentrate on upper body strength. Run. Know minimum standards. Be a team player. Know the ranks. And on and on. Whether it's preparing for military training, preparing for parenting, which may be the harder of the two, preparing for a new job, preparing for retirements, All of us look to the future with questions. Joshua chapter 5 outlines for us some of the ways in which God prepared his people for inheriting the land that he had promised to deliver them to and to give to them. I invite you to turn in a paper copy or an electronic copy of the Bible to the Old Testament and find the book of Joshua. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 169. If you aren't familiar with the layout of the books of the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers, and today we're looking at chapter number five. This is the seventh sermon in a series that we're doing through this book that records for us the history of a promise-keeping God. I hope that you are and that you have been encouraged uh, with the promises of God and the way in which He fulfills those promises to us, His children. For instance, I'm encouraged that God promises eternal rest for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never done that, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please consider this morning the opportunity for ultimate delivery that God has provided to you. To all who call upon the name of the Lord. The last two times that we came to this study, we considered how the Lord brought the congregation of Israel across the Jordan River in order to bring them into the promised land. Now chapter 5 gives instruction on how Jehovah further prepares his special people for that future that he has promised to them, that he has planned for them. You remember perhaps from last week, uh, or we closed chapter, uh, chapter 4. Look, look at verse 23 with me one more time of chapter 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, so that so that all the people of the earth, so God did this at the Red Sea and God did this again at the Jordan River. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord that it is a mighty hand, and that you might fear the Lord your God forever. And it came to pass, chapter 5, verse 1, when all the kings of the Amorites, which were, on this side, which were on the side of the Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until they were passed over, that their hearts melted. Neither was their spirits In any of them anymore because of the children of Israel. Well, God said, I'm going to do this so that all the people of the world will will know my mighty hand, and so that you will fear me forever. And chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that it worked. The hearts of the people west on the west side of the of the Jordan River, they melted in fear. Have you noted as we've been walking through our study how slow the pace is uh, so far? It's 24 chapters long, Joshua. It's not until chapter 6 that we actually see some battle scenes. We actually see some going in to invade the land. This is like now as we come to Joshua chapter 5, it's like hitting the pause button on the action and making sure that people are prepared to do the work of God God's way. Aren't you glad that God knows your future? Aren't you glad that God prepares you for your future? Now, sometimes we we deceive ourselves into thinking that we could plan a better future for ourselves than God could. Now, we don't say that out loud, but that's how we think and that's how we live. God, my future should look like this. My future should unfold in this way. Or sometimes we wish that we could at least know what his future plans are for us. But when it comes down to it, there's a lot of comfort for us as we acknowledge that God does have a plan. He has a future plan plan for us. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We talk a lot about the future. At least we do that at our house. We talk about next week. We talk about summer break from school. We talk about family vacation. We talk about high school graduation. And we kind of have to stop right there because I'm trying to convince the kids that my allergies, that are making my eyes water. Brothers and sisters, there is a hope. There is a confidence. There is a rest. There is a peace that comes when we acknowledge that God has a future planned for us. God is is working in you now to prepare you for the future that he has planned for you. And that's really the thrust of of this passage in, in Joshua chapter 5. God uses his extraordinary ways to prepare you for the future that he has planned for you. God uses His extraordinary ways to prepare you for the future that He has planned for you. We'll note three extraordinary ways of God that are evident in Joshua chapter 5. First of all, we see His extraordinary way of claiming us as His people. God has an extraordinary way of claiming us as His people. Follow along as I begin reading at verse number 2 now. At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make you sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. Now all the, now all the people that came out were circumcised, But all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, they had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers, that he would give us a land that flows with milk and honey. And their children... "...whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been been circumcised along the way. And it came to pass, when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in their places in the camp, till they were whole, till they were healed. And the Lord said unto Joshua, "...this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off of you, wherefore..." The name of the place is called Gilgal until this day. Now, if you are not familiar with the Old Testament, this probably seems fairly strange to you. When I was reading this week about preparing for military training, none of the websites recommended circumcision. Why in the world, why in the world on the cusp of war with the inhabitants of the land that they were invading, why in the world does God instruct the men to be circumcised? What kind of strategy is it to incapacitate all the warriors for three days until they were healed up, right as they enter into enemy territory? Does that sound like sound, solid military strategy to you? It's an absolutely extraordinary way that God guides. Well, a few words to, uh, of explanation regarding the history of, of circumcision. When covenants were made in the ancient Middle East, they were sealed with a sign. Maybe you remember the, the covenant that God made with Noah. And there was a sign. It was sealed with a rainbow in the sky. Or perhaps your mind goes forward in Hebrew history to the covenant made uh, in the book of Ruth that included uh, the sign of someone re- by, by someone removing their shoe. Covenants were sealed with a sign. And the way that God sealed his promise to his people was via circumcision. In Hebrew idiom, and expressions in Hebrew, to make a covenant was actually to cut a covenant. For example, an animal was cut off from life as a substitute to save a, a consecrated family in the Passover meal. In circumcision, the foreskin of a male was cut off to save the whole person from being cut off by God's judgment. So, circumcision was the mark of the covenants, signifying membership in the covenant people of Israel. This was God's way of claiming his people. This was God's way of looking at his people and saying, these are mine. They are my people. Forty years prior, just before the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, God had instituted the Passover and the circumcision of males in order to mark his people as being his people. And that's what Joshua chapter 5 verse 2 was all about. It's talking about when it refers to circumcising the children of Israel a second time. Obviously, it's not talking about the same individuals. And he goes on to explain, it's referring to all the Israelites that had been circumcised before the Exodus. But all of those individuals had died in the wilderness. Therefore, at this point, this generation of Israelites had not been circumcised the fact that they had not been recalls the sad results of their unbelief and the rebellion of these this generation of israelites against the lord the narrator even refers to them being consumed by the lord quick rabbit trail there's a warning that comes through this sign of circumcision Those who had come out of Egypt had been circumcised. But verse 6 tells us that those were consumed because they didn't obey the voice of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that you can experience the exodus, you can eat the manna, you can drink the water from the rock, and yet remain in unbelief. Friends, understand this. You can have the marks of the people of God but still lack the response of the people of God. You can take of the table unworthily. You can be dipped under water in unbelief, and it is possible to be received into membership of a church through deception of self and deception of others. But God cannot be deceived. Hear the warning this morning. You can experience church life. You can read the Bible. You can talk christian ease, and yet remain in unbelief. Friends, don't be so close and yet remain in unbelief. See, ask God to show you your need of rescue by His Son and our Savior Jesus. Nobody that had originally participated in the Exodus was still living except for Joshua and Caleb. No uncircumcised Israelites passed through the Red Sea, and no none stood at Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with God. And now, none would enter into the promised land until this renewing of a promise was signified through circumcision. Israel was taking the responsibilities of the covenants through this sign. And it was through their obedience to the covenants that this Judgment could be removed from the nation. The reproach of Egypt was no longer on them. So for us, as we think, we need judgment removed also, don't we? Because we enter into this world in sin and in rebellion against God and do for judgment. And so we need judgment removed. And that can only happen through belief in what Christ has done. Circumcision reminds us that every single one of us needs to have sin cut out of our lives. We can't cut our evil heart out ourselves. That's up to God, and he does that via the cross, via, his work, via Jesus Christ at the cross. We testify of that when we are baptized. God was renewing his covenant with Israel, an extraordinary way of displaying his extraordinary grace. Circumcision was a way for God to renew His covenant with His people, to claim them as His. He says, these are mine. God's way of claiming us as His own is an extraordinary way that God works to prepare us for our future. But it's not only the outward sign of our own baptism. It's not only the seal of salvation that comes via the Holy Spirit that makes His claim to all of us Ex, to, to his claim of us being his extraordinary. It's the fact that he claims us at all. It's the fact that he claims us to be His people. What hope there is for us as children of God? The hymn writer says it this way: "I now am reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child." I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw an eye. With confidence I now draw an eye. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. He claims you as his own. In facing temptation this coming week, you have a God who claims you as mine. You are a beloved child of God. In discouragement this week, You have a God who claims you as His. He's not leaving you now. He's not going to forsake you now. So pursue what He has called you to pursue. God uses His extraordinary ways to prepare you for the future, the very future that He has all planned out for you. And one of His extraordinary ways that He prepares you for your future is to claim you as His child, to make you one of His. So maybe later this afternoon or later this week, you should take a time and just go on a walk or sit in your favorite chair and think about all of the ramifications, all of the results of what it means to be claimed as one of God's. What that means for your life this week. What that means for your future. How you could rest because he has claimed you as his. He has an extraordinary way of claiming us as his people. Secondly, he has an extraordinary way of delivering us through his provisions. Look at verse number 10. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land, on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self same day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more. But they did eat of the fruits of the land of Canaan that year. Circumcision was a precondition for participating in the Passover festival. Passover was a time for Israel to look back upon their exodus from Egypt, or what they knew of that exodus from Egypt. God had sent ten plagues to harden Pharaoh's heart, and it was on that final tenth plague when the angel of death visited Egypt. The Israelites had been instructed to put the blood of an innocent lamb along the doorpost of their homes, and when the angel of the death saw the blood that was on those doorpost, he passed over that house without striking death to the firstborn. And then each year the nation would, would commemorate that event through a meal of remembrance called the Passover. And now in our text, as the next generation of Israelites is prepared, preparing to enter into the promised land and preparing for this upcoming battle, God was reminding them that who they were, that they were uh, his people. He was reminding them that they had been delivered from the hand of of the Egyptians by his own provisions. Observance of the Passover was a a God-appointed means for regularly reminding his chosen people how he delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians in extraordinary ways. The narrator also points to the extraordinary and miraculous provision of manna for the children of Israel every morning for those 40 years in the wilderness. This is the only time I think it's verse number six, that are thereabouts, that refers to uh, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the only time in Joshua that, that phrase appears. We'd heard about it, right? The children of Israel had heard about it. They were preparing for it. They were looking forward to it. But now the the, the narrator points to us that the manna for the children of Israel uh, it was it was ceasing because there was new provision for them. But don't all miracles during Israel's history and Israel's conquest point us to the extraordinary ways that God delivers. Not only had he provided manna for 40 years, he had also provided protection and guidance through the wilderness. He helped them cross the Jordan River. He will provide for a weakening of the fortified city walls of Jericho, which will just crumble to the ground. He's going to provide uh, uh, hailstones to crush their enemies. He's going to, to Command the sun to stand still. He will over and over again display his extraordinary ways of deliverance in providing for them. It's a new page in Israel's history. His, the wilderness was behind them. The promised land was before them. And their diet changed as well. The manna was God's special provision for an exceptional need, but now their need changes is more normal, so God's provision comes via ordinary means, fruit of the land. But it's still provision, isn't it? It's still God's extraordinary way of providing. Here is a point for you to consider. God's provisions of deliverance, God's provision to deliver His people is extraordinary, whether or not the means is extraordinary. So via a Passover meal, God points them back to his most extraordinary provision of their deliverance. But even via daily bread, he points them back to his extraordinary, ordinary provisions of deliverance. Each weekday, the two children in our family travel up Route 23 and get dropped off at a location for an activity fondly referred to as "school." Payton is in his 10th year making that trek up Route 23. Tara has done the heavy lifting of the transportation needs for our family, but I jump in on usually on Wednesdays and Friday mornings. When I pull to the curb of the school to drop off my kids, we stop and we pray before they exit the vehicle. And every time I pray and I thank God for two things. I thank God for providing for them to be able to attend school, and secondly. I thank God for the safety in our arrival to the school, driving up 23 to Loyola every day. One morning, a few years ago, when Tara was driving, an oncoming car crossed the double yellow lines into her lane. She swerved to miss, and that car ended up colliding with cars behind our family vehicle. And of course, everyone was shaken after that event, but it also left everyone thankful For God's provision of deliverance. Maybe it would be most helpful to ask ourselves this question, though. What is more extraordinary? Provision of deliverance in a near miss or a full decade of daily deliverance of safety? The answer is yes, right? God is extraordinary to deliver in a single instance And he's extraordinary to deliver over and over and over again, over a period of many instances. You see, God is in a pattern of being extraordinary by ordinary means. Picking up a paycheck is an ordinary thing that you're able to go through, but it's an extraordinary provision for you. Sitting down to a warm meal, conversations with a friend, fuel for your vehicle, a restful night's sleep, good health. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So every Lord's Day, we celebrate the extraordinary deliverance that we have experienced via the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the provision of deliverance from the penalty of our sins that he has paid for at the cross. But we must also recognize that God acts in an extraordinary way even in the ordinary moments of our lives. God is preparing you, friend. He is preparing you for his future plans for you in extraordinary ways by providing deliverance for you chiefly he has done this by providing your deliverance from this penalty of sin but he's also doing it through daily grace to provide for all of your needs to give you deliverance in your marriage issues in your parenting issues in your career issues in your retirement struggles brothers and sisters take hope take confidence in the ultimate and the daily deliverance that he provides to you his deliverance is preparation for your future. And God uses His extraordinary ways to prepare you for the future that He has planned already for you. He's extraordinary in claiming you as His own people. He is extraordinary in delivering you through His provisions. And thirdly, in the last part of the chapter, we see His extraordinary way of humbling us with His presence. Look at verse number 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, no. But as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? And Joshua, he fell on his face to the earth, and he worshiped, and he said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servants? What do you want me to do? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua was not expecting this individual. He was clearly surprised. This individual's appearance was confusing or ambiguous to Joshua. We might be tempted to draw the conclusion that this is an angel, but not likely. Joshua uh, worships. Every time in the Bible, when people bow down to an angel, the angel would tell them to get up, to not worship. But that doesn't happen here. This individual accepted the worship that Joshua gives, who he also recognizes is probably not an angel because uh, the, the, the place where he is standing is called holy, and holiness is a display of, of, of divine presence. And also further in chapter 6, this individual is blended into God himself. This reminds us of other times from the Old Testament, like Genesis chapter 3, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Or Abraham, by the trees of Mamre. The one that wrestled with Jacob at the Jabbok River. It seems to be the same figure now who appears to Joshua in our text. This captain of the Lord's host, this captain of Jehovah's army, was a mysterious pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This is where the first Joshua meets the second Joshua. This is where Joshua, the son of Nun, meets Jesus, the son of God, face to face. And we can only imagine the trepidation of Joshua at this point. And he asks this question, are you for us? Or are you for the enemy? And the individual replies, no. If Joshua was fearful and confused before, what must have been going through his heart at this point? The commander of the Lord of hosts, he answers, I am neither for you or for your enemies. I am here to command Jehovah's army. Now we know that he was for Joshua indeed, and that he led the battle into Jericho. But Joshua is asking asking the wrong question. It wasn't about Joshua claiming God for his own military cause. It wasn't about Joshua doing his thing and leading the people of Israel and saying, okay, you come and be on our side. It wasn't about that. It was about God claiming Joshua. It was about God claiming Israel for his cause. It's been reported that a friend Assured Abraham Lincoln at one point, God is on your side. And the president replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. You see, Jehovah was, was leading the children of Israel. Joshua was to follow this commander, not the other way around. The commander of the Lord's army doesn't need an invitation to go to battle for us. He leads, and we follow. Didn't Martin Luther get it right when he wrote the text? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age to come, the same, and he must win the battle. Properly understood and applied, these final verses should stomp all over our toes. God is very often not like what we think he is. God smashes our false perceptions of him and the false expectations that we make of him. In the presence of the commander, Joshua drops to the ground and he asks, what should I do? What would you have me to do? Do you recognize the power and the holiness of Almighty God? Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners of the Hands of the Angry God, he said it this way, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the presence. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or a loathsome insect over the flame, His wrath towards you burns like fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit you hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. I think that some days in our world today, we have lessened in our own minds, in our own hearts, the holiness, the greatness of our God. Boyce said it this way, the God in our minds is always smaller than the true living God, if only because our minds are too small to fully conceive of or encompass Him. Time with God, as we spend that time, reveals more and more of His greatness and more and more of our smallness. Consider the greatness of your God and the smallness of yourself. But so often we get caught up in our own little bubble, we expect God to be on our side and pursuing our Christian agenda that we have for church, that we have for school, that we have for our marriage. And it's not about God being on our side. It's about us being on God's side. It's about us following God. And what is the message that is delivered to Joshua? Verse 14, now I have come. The commander of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ himself, tells Joshua, now I have come. My presence is with you. Friends, the second Joshua has come. He has come to be with us. Jesus went to a cross and he allowed the sword to be applied to him. And Jesus allowed God to be against him so that God is always, even in our failures, for us. Brothers and sisters, recognize that God is bigger and greater than you can even imagine. And his extraordinary way of humbling you with his presence, it prepares you for what lies ahead. This is a God that is wiser than you more compassionate than you, more patient than you, completely holy, just, pure, righteous, and merciful. He humbles us with his presence so that we can trust him as he leads us in the future that he has planned for us. So maybe you've been contemplating the future. Maybe you have spent a lot of time wondering what the future holds for you always wanting to be prepared for the future. Relationship in your marriage, a job, health, other relationships, retirement, some other sphere of your life. God uses His extraordinary ways to prepare you for the future that He has planned for you. The Creator of the world, our Creator who spoke the world into existence, the Alpha and the Omega, The beginning and the ending. The good shepherd of the sheep. The commander of the Lord's army has come to be with us. The second Joshua appeared on this earth in order to place his claim on us as his people. In order to deliver us from the penalty of our sin and to humble us with his ongoing presence with us. Christian, he is the one that you can rest in for your future he is the one that you can follow for your future. If God be for us, who can be against us? What else do you need to know to obey the calls of God on your life? The Lord is on your side. You have been called by God to follow Him. He is your commander. So go forward with obedience. Go forward with thanksgiving. And go forward with trust and the plan of the commander of the Lord for your life let's bow our heads and close our eyes